welcome, and thanks for listening to AGI SureTrack Coffee Talk. Today's episode is strengthening grain prices through global market development with the U.S. Grains Council. Here's your host, Laura Hankey. All right. Thanks, Brian. Hey, good morning, Melissa. How are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? Hey, doing well. No complaints here. So we are getting some much needed rain here in Northeast Kansas. So how's the weather there in D.C. this morning? Um, It's pretty good. It was actually quite warm yesterday. It was in the 80s, and that's not typical for our fall. So it was a nice, odd combination of fall leaves and summer temps. Right, right. Yeah, we had um, 80s here yesterday as well and woke up to uh, low 40s this morning. So welcome to Kansas, right? I was going to say you're having a front there. That's a, that's we are. Yeah. We are. Well, again, thanks for joining us here this morning to talk about all things grain and the good work that the U.S. Grains Council does around the world, really, to strengthen relationships and, and um, develop opportunities for our U.S. farmers. So as we get started, to elaborate on that a little bit, why don't you go ahead and tell us what the U.S. Grains Council does um, and a little bit about your team. Yeah, so we are an export market development organization, which means we're basically the marketing arm um, for the grains that we cover and and co-products that we cover overseas. Um, So, you know, farmers obviously pay in their checkoff dollars um, and those at the national level go to domestic promotion um, to try to encourage people in the U.S. to consume certain products. Um, They also go to international promotion. So we're that international promotion arm. Uh, and we do what's broadly defined as market development, which, you know, you can uh, explain in many different ways. Um, I often say, you know, we don't buy anything, we don't sell anything, but we teach people how to do that um, and why they would want to do that, specifically related to U.S. products. The Grains Council covers corn, sorghum, and barley, which are feed grains, um, as well as ethanol, which is made from obviously sorghum and corn, um, and related products. So distillers corn oil, corn gluten meal, corn gluten feed, and most importantly, distillers dried grains with solubles or DDGS, um, which some people, we often say DDGs. Um, so those are all products that are highly demanded around the world and that we've been able to help our customers around the world understand why they would want to use those products and why they would want to have a U.S. preference for those products. Right. So um, I definitely want to talk about your role within U.S. Grains Council as well. But before we do that, um, let's talk a little bit about why the work that you do is so important. Why is trade so important to U.S. producers today? Yeah, so I think it's it's worth understanding that in our work, you know, we're really focused overseas. We have about 100 staff and consultants um, in, we work in 50 markets. So, you know, they pretty much in normal times, at least, go wherever they need to go. Um, and we also have standing offices in several key countries, Japan, Korea, China. Um, we have an office in Malaysia. We have an office in uh, or in Kuala Lumpur, we have an office in Panama City, Panama, Tunis, Tunisia, um, as well as Mexico City, and then you know various people throughout places. Geography is becoming less and less important um, as time goes by. Um, those are the people who are really doing the work of the council, um, but the people who really drive that work are our members who are in the U.S. Um, and mostly in the U.S. Midwest, people who are growing those grain products um, and people who are exporting those products because we have the full value chain as part of our membership. Um, so I, I think explaining why trade is important really involves working with both of those constituencies, the people overseas who are buying our products or maybe considering buying our products um, and the people 
in the U.S. who are producing them. And, you know, our fun, our work is kind of fundamentally connecting those two and helping both sides understand why trade is of value for them. So as a customer, you know, you know, at a, a national level, thinking about a country, you want to have food security, right? And, you know, we have made the argument, as have many others over the years, that food security can be achieved by producing all you need right here, um, or by producing what you're very best at, that specialization of labor, and importing other things. Japan, of course, is a great example. Japan is an island country. They cannot possibly produce the amount of feed grains that they need, but they've been very successful in building a a feed production industry, a livestock industry, based on knowing that we are a reliable supplier of those grains. And on the U.S. side, having those customers that have built up industries um, to produce feed and produce livestock for local markets um, means that they have reliable customers and that there are people in the market um, globally, because these are all globally traded commodities, buying year in and year out, and therefore that they have customers year in and year out. And for a farmer, trade really does impact price at a very immediate kind of level and then in a longer term demand driven level. So, you know, in, in, in the immediate time, demand from overseas affects your basis, right? Which affects what you're, what you're taking home for your product. Um, and then the bigger picture, demand from overseas impacts the overall pie. How much corn is needed in this world? How much sorghum is needed in this world? And that demand um, directly impacts price because when it collides with supply, that's where price comes from. So by increasing demand overall, even if it's not necessarily even demand for U.S. product, just increasing that demand overall, and we know we're competitive, we'll go in and get part of that pie, um, that helps support that farmer price and therefore profitability. Right, right. And, you know, I'm so glad that you mentioned Japan. I think when we think about trade, we automatically navigate to China because that's what we're tuned in to do, right? Um, Especially with everything that's going on in our corn and soybean markets today. Um, So your role as partnership manager, correct? Uh, my title is Director of Strategic Relations. Director of Strategic Relations. All right. So yeah. partnerships, relations. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about that. How are you helping to bridge those gaps and facilitate those relationships? Yeah. So my role, I think, is a bit unique in that it really is intended to help cross over pieces within the organization um, and pieces within the organization and our membership. Right. So um, I oversee our communications department, work obviously very closely with them. And that was you know, where I kind of came from um, within the organization. Um, but after I guess, well, after the 2016 election cycle, you know, trade was talked about more in that election cycle than in recent memory. Um, trade used to be sort of the, you know, not that exciting, really important, but kind of boring meeting you would go to now and again. And in 2016, 2017, we really saw that explode and trade issues became part of what we're talking about on a daily basis, not just in agriculture, but in our country. I think it really focused people's attention on our engagement with the world and how that impacts um, our economy here at home in a new way. Um, There's a lot of polling data to back that up, that people are thinking more deeply about trade than they ever have before. And for an organization that is only focused on trade and market development, um, that meant that we had a lot of new needs, a lot of new demand for information, um, a lot of new demand for kind of, you know, the flow of information sped up um, and, you know, uh, helping people understand 
and the complexity, because ultimately, you know, in some ways, working on trade issues is very much like working on crop insurance issues or farm policy issues or whatever, except there's like a hundred countries and we do six commodities. And so, you know, it, it gets big pretty fast. Right, right. So, you know, to, to talk about that a little deeper, let's discover some of those partnerships that your team is working on. Um, what are some of those emerging markets and how is that work being facilitated? Yeah. So, uh, you know, big places we're watching at this moment, Southeast Asia is obviously, you know, that is, I think, the place where we really see not only demand growing right now, but a lot of potential. Um, we talk about, you know, Vietnam is just a powerhouse that is, a, you know, coming out of the woodwork. And then we talk about like, what's the next Vietnam, right? And if you look back at the arc over time of market development, you know, 30 years ago, you'd be saying, okay, well, Vietnam is the next Korea or whatever. And now we're saying, okay, is Myanmar the next Vietnam? And I mean, looking at those kind of fundamental pieces of demand, um, population growth, income growth, um, the ability to produce locally, the interest in producing locally versus, you know, economies that are diversified in other ways. Those are all factors that we look at when we think, okay, where are markets going to emerge? As well as, you know, governments and industries that are interested in trade. And, you know, again, I think that picture has changed a lot over the last several years. But, you know, in the last, I would say, several decades, um, governments and industries have realized how important trade is globalization is obviously, you know, a trend that is not going away. It's not embedded in our economy and our lives. So Southeast Asia is a big thing. Um, I think we're also looking to the future of, you know, a growing Africa. Um, we have had programs in North Africa for several decades that have been very successful working with local poultry and dairy industries there. Um, South Africa is actually a corn exporter um, that occasionally imports. We, you know, and has a pretty well-developed um, grain production industry. We've worked with them as needed. And we're now kind of pulling, you know, the, that learning that we had in North Africa and those programs into East and West Africa in a more um, strategic and aggressive way, um, knowing that those markets are, are going to have a lot of demand in the future. And, you know, building the capacity for feed production, for livestock production there is a key focus, um, as well as helping develop trade policy that will support, again, food security through trade. Um, that it's not just you have to produce it down the road, um, that you can produce what you are uniquely good at, and we will provide you pretty much as much corn as you need. Right. So, you know, when you're talking about developing and facilitating these relationships, these aren't email conversations, phone conversations. These are boots on the ground folks in these regions who are there every day working with policymakers and really facilitating the conversation that we need to, to open and, and build these markets. Um, where are these folks located within your team? Yeah, I was going to say, these days, it's actually all of the above. And I think, you know, the good and bad news, the COVID situation, um, I keep saying in some ways for us, it's changed everything. And in some ways, it's kind of changed nothing because the <laughs> fundamental work we're doing is the same, reaching out to, you know, people who need this information. And in most markets, there's a few key people. I mean, this is, um, you know, a very specific thing that we're doing. And it's in many cases, very technical. Um, so making sure we provide that information is a key priority. But yeah, a lot of that looks like going and meeting people, getting to know them, building those relationships. And in some cases, you know, in the North Asian markets, in Japan, Korea, et cetera, we've had those relationships for decades. Um, 
we had just an anecdote a few weeks ago, we had a photo come through from our Taiwan office. Taiwan has had, uh, you know, very, very controlled COVID situation. So people can meet in person almost like, you know, quote unquote normal. And it was a nice photo of our current director, a prior director and our prior director before that their families had gotten together. And that's the type of relationship um, that a lot of our, our staff have and that a lot of um, our markets have seen develop over time. Um, so it's, I mean, it is a very personal thing, but a good phrase I've heard even yet this week is high tech and high touch. And in the time of COVID, what we've realized is, is those personal relationships were always enhanced through, you know, email communications. And we send out regular newsletters every week about market conditions and, you know, kind of that regular business to business communication. In the time of COVID, what we've realized is that we've had to replace some of the in-person events with virtual events. Um, and that's allowed us to break through some barriers that we did still have, barriers of the calendar, barriers of geography. Um, there are certain places in this world that are just really hard to get to. Um, and if you can, you know, I'm thinking about Southeast Mexico, right? We've had programs there for years, but having been down there myself, I mean, you can spend a day getting to a place where you're talking to maybe 20 or 30 people, important people, people who will lead change in that region. But nevertheless, it's a lot of time. And, you know, in the age of Zoom, like, just call them up. And some people have very much taken to that. Um, we also, you know, have had challenges sometimes getting people to come to the U.S. I mean, in some cases, that is a full day trip, full day back, you know, 12 hour time difference. That's a lot of time away from an office for a higher level person or a person with a lot of demands on their time. Um, and so we had a conference um, two weeks ago, the virtual grain exchange that you know, we had 1,200 people registered for it, 900 people showed up live. And some of those people were people that we had not previously been able to engage in a very deep level, um, but because it was right there on their computer, it, you know, those barriers came down. And so looking to the future, I think we're sort of uh, gonna be in an all of the above strategy, right? Like what is our very specific goal here? Who do we need to reach for that and how is best to reach them? And that toolbox is constantly expanding, which for us, you know, is, is a nice silver lining to an otherwise, you know, pretty, pretty challenging situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, talking about being able to pull additional folks in on a global scale, what about here at home in the U.S.? Have you been able to reach additional farmers that you wouldn't have necessarily been able to have a conversation with pre-COVID? Yeah, in some ways, um, it's been interesting. Farmers, we were pretty tied in with. And I we were talking before we went live about, you know, the challenges of internet and all of that. And it's it's been fascinating to me. I've worked in ag for about 15 years. And in that time, you know, cell service and web service has, has greatly expanded. I mean, there's still a lot of room to grow. Um, but we have farmers who are very engaged on a daily basis on Facebook. They're listening to things in the media. You know, they are like right there. Um, and I think that that has continued. And we saw at the beginning of the COVID situation, an enormous demand for information about what is happening overseas. What are these folks concerned? What we also saw was an enormous um, kind of output of information from farmers, from checkoff organizations that we work with, as well as our agribusiness members um, in a way that we had not previously, again, coming from the communication side, like in a way that we had not previously been able to access. So, you know, video, like the initial kind of question was, will the U.S. still be able to export? And 
That's a question that our entire system is built around the answer being yes. Um, our entire kind of brand is built around the answer being yes. Like, I don't think many people ever considered that answer not being yes. And in this situation, you know, all of a sudden everything was uncertain. And, um, you know, we needed to show the answer is still yes. Like you order it, you're going to get it. That is what we do. Uh, and we had several agribusinesses and farmer organizations step up and say, okay, we're going to take video. We're going to go out and take some drone video of, of you know, a grain elevator. We're going to take video of a port, whatever. And it was lovely. We could get that, um, put subtitles on it, send it overseas. They could, you know, translate it as needed. Um, and really show people, look, everything is still functioning. There's a barge on the river. Um, there's a farmer in the field. Like, you know, it's all still happening because agriculture, of course, did not shut down in any meaningful way. I mean, we just kind of kept it moving and took some took some new precautions for sure. I think a lot of folks have been very diligent about that. But the system has held in a really, um, I think, important and meaningful way for our overseas customers. And it's been wonderful to be able to show that to them directly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, at the beginning, you touched on checkoff dollars and, and the work that you're able to do because of those checkoff dollars. But you're not solely checkoff funded, correct? We're not. No, we, we have a complex budget. Um, so we have a complex membership. So our members are checkoff organizations from the corn, sorghum and barley organization or barley industries. So corn, that's obviously state by state. Sorghum, there's a national checkoff, United Sorghum Checkoff Program and barley, which is state by state. Um, and then we have what we call, we have agribusiness members, right? So, um, you know, anyone from the, you know, the large plant science organizations, um, tech organizations, exporters, et cetera. We have a lot of DDGs, um, production facilities, also known as ethanol production facilities um, that are our members. And then we have what we would call general farm organizations. So American Farm Bureau, for example, several state departments of ag, including Kansas, um, we really are a big tent in agriculture. If you have a stake in producing and exporting grain, then you are pretty much eligible for Grains Council membership. So that is a huge uh, benefit of our organization that not, I think, that many organizations in agriculture have that big of a tent. Of course, that adds complexity. Um, but we are funded, our first dollars really come from those checkoff organizations. Um, I mean, this work is first and foremost supported by farmers through those those groups. Um, we also, of course, have membership money coming from the agribusinesses and the general farm organizations. Um, and then we apply for effectively grant funding through the market access program and the foreign market development program, which are in the U.S. Farm Bill. Um, we also have gotten money from the agricultural trade promotion program, which is um, was part of the trade aid package um, now, I guess, probably 18 months ago. Time time flies and when you're having fun. Um, so we are getting uh, farmer dollars and federal dollars, but those farmer dollars are really, they're the first dollars. They allow us to apply for the federal dollars. Right. So, and I, I think that's an important thing um, and, and takeaway here today is, you know, the fact that those checkoff dollars are so important to being able to open you guys up to apply for additional funds um, on the grant level. So, you know, when we're talking about education being the cornerstone of what you're doing there at USGC, what are some of the things that you're providing? What are some of the resources that you're helping farmers to um, take away from the work that you're doing? 
Yeah, so I think it, it goes both sides, right? So again, you know, our focus really is um, on our overseas customers and making sure they have the information they need. And that can look like contracting, that can look like, you know, how do we physically move this stuff? That can look like, how do we use it? How do we create a feed formulation? Um, you know, how do we store grains properly for our environment, um, what is happening in the policy arena, how do we manage that, all of those things are issues that we work with on a daily basis with our overseas customers. And I think in the U.S., our, you know, the part of our mission that is working with farmers that are part of our membership and beyond is really, okay, what are the needs of those customers? What questions do they really have? Um, and how do um, our relationships with other countries and our, our trade policy priorities specifically, how do they impact the work we're able to do overseas? And again, that's not necessarily a straightforward thing. Trade policy is really complicated. Um, you know, you get in to what is the WTO, what's an FTA, what's a regional trade agreement, um, what's an anti-dumping or countervailing duty action, what's, you know, what's a tariff, um, and all of those things, it's like, you know it, but you may not really know it, um, and so our education efforts in the U.S. focus on what is, how did we get here, what is the history of our trade policy um, perspective as a country and as an industry, um, how, you know, has this evolved over time? How is it helpful to us and not helpful to us? What are the institutions that are making the rules here and how are we influencing those or not? Um, and, you know, how do we make change where we need to see change, both through a structural standpoint and the WTO or, you know, in a trade agreement? And how do we make change from a political standpoint? How do you go you know, we partner with our sister organizations on the policy side. How do you go to Congress and talk about trade? Um, why is that important to do along with talking about crop insurance or, you know, the farm bill or ethanol policy or, you know, what have you? And so um, there's a lot there. And I think over the last, you know, several years, we've really built up our programming to talk to people about trade and provide that fundamental information. But it's an ongoing effort. Right. Because also issues are changing. Um, we see, you know, changes in the market every day. Right. And, you know, as I was looking through your website, preparing for this conversation here today, um, you know, you guys have gone so far as to even develop a, a toolkit of talking points that folks can go onto your website and reference, you know, for local conversations as well as those higher level conversations. Um, how are you facilitating that? Is that mainly through state commodity groups that you're working with? Yes, yeah, for sure. We, um, we've held a series of what we call trade schools, partnering with national corn growers and with state organizations. Um, we did one in 2016 in Washington, D.C., and one in 2018 in St. Louis that were like, you know, kind of all, all comers welcome. And then we did a series of regional events last year um, in Maryland, Indiana, Kansas, Colorado. Oh, heavens. Illinois. Um, and, you know, we worked with the state organizations specifically on those to make them more assess accessible for farmers who could, you know, drive in versus having to fly to St. Louis or fly to D.C. Um, and we talked more about regional issues at those events. But those were six to eight hours of instruction about trade. Um, and, you know, there were some exercises built in there and certainly some processing and helping people build their own messages about trade and think about who do they want to be talking to about trade. Um, but, you know, the guy 
guys who came to that um, and the ladies who came to that, it's a very intense, deep dive into trade topics. And I think uh, for a lot of them, it made them realize, okay, this is super important. I need to keep following this. How do I continue to do it? And that's where, especially in this time of, you know, I think were the world different, we would be having more of those regional events this year. Um, And for now, we're really focusing on having, you know, other supplementary activities online, you know, although people have a limited tolerance for that, I think, um, and, you know, offering other resources so people know what's going on um, and can continue to educate themselves. We do have on our website a section called Why Trade Matters, and a lot of the information in that section is what you're describing. It's kind of basic background about trade, um, talking points, but also resources to go learn about, you know, USMCA or China um, or, you know, how did we get these uh, infrastructure, the, you know, how did the WTO develop? How did our tariff uh, perspective develop? All that information we're trying to provide in addition to information about what's happening in the markets now, what's the long-term picture in these markets, who are our top exporters, um, kind of that more um, very specific and time-bound information. We're trying to provide some of the more, I don't want to call it generic exactly, but in journalism terms, we would call it evergreen, like continue to be good information over time. Yeah. So, you know, to shift gears here and talk a little bit about more crop specific topics. um, You know, I noticed when I was looking through your website as well that um, DDGs and ethanol Mm -hmm. now have their own tabs. Um, So what has that looked like over the last year with all those plants being idled here in the U.S.? Has that changed opportunities throughout the world for U.S. ethanol? So, yeah, so I think um, we, you know, the Grains Council was originally born out of corn, sorghum, and barley, the feed grains. Um, And when ethanol plants started to come online in the U.S. um, and produce ethanol and DDGs, I mean, there was a huge opportunity for exporting DDGs. And, you know, our organization, frankly, built that market around the world. I mean, went around the world and had technical manual and said, this is how you use this. And a lot of our work in DDGs is still doing that in markets that don't yet have full DDGs adoption or don't yet know about the product um, or are using the product, but not maybe at the inclusion rate that they could be. Um, And so when COVID happened, and obviously that impacted gasoline markets, which impacted ethanol markets, which impacted ethanol plants, which impacted DDGs production, um, you know, we really did have to, you know, work with our customers to understand, okay, prices went temporarily up. Now they have you know, rebalance. um, And those GDG's exports have kind of settled out again. Um, But that was one of the shocks to the system that occurred when everything started shutting down, you know, really in a very short time frame for COVID. Um, For ethanol, we started promoting ethanol about five years ago, really in earnest. We work with the Renewable Fuels Association, Growth Energy, um, our state checkoffs very, very closely, as well as with USDA's Foreign Agricultural Service, which is um, the arm through which we receive federal funds. And we work very closely as a group uh, in ethanol market development. And we've seen some real progress there. I think the issue at the moment is that ethanol and you know, petroleum, that that cost advantage has flipped. We know it will flip back at some point. And we also know ethanol has a lot of benefits other than cost advantage, right? It is is an environmental product. And there are a lot of countries that have really gotten an eye-opening experience through this um, that, you know, 
our air quality matters, um, our environment matters. Having most of the world at home for at least a brief period of time really, um, I think, highlighted how much impact we as humans are having on those things. Um, and ethanol is a part of that solution. And so part of our work is helping uh, governments, frankly, uh, as well as industries, really understand what ethanol is, what its benefits are, what the, the U.S. case study has been, what case studies in other countries that have good adoption, what experiences they've had with ethanol, and then the technical pieces, um, because that's not to be overlooked. How do you how do you move it? How do you store it? How do you blend it? All of those things are part of that equation to increasing ethanol adoption around the world. Yeah. So, you know, it was funny that you mentioned the the flip-flop of ethanol and um, petroleum. Really, the flip-flop, too, was in DDGs and ethanol. You know, what started as a byproduct that we weren't sure what we were going to do with has become a market globally. Oh, yeah. Um, it's a big market. Absolutely. Yeah. And so are you guys able to work with the U.S. Meat Export Federation on some of that as well? Do you guys ever team up to promote some of those opportunities in other parts of the world? Yeah, so USMEF is um, focused on promoting certain meat products. Um, they're actually, so we are called a cooperator organization as the term of art because we cooperate with USDA on product promotion. So MEF is the cooperator organization for red meat products. Um, and we do work with them, not so much on DDG's promotion, but on kind of um, what I would call more systemic issues. So, you know, if a market is going to build up their overall protein supply, their ability to produce animal protein um, for a country, which in a, in a more developing market is often a key goal. When you go from, you know, a dollar a day, $2 a day to $2 a day to $4 a day, your income increases. The first thing you want is more and better food. Um, so in some of those markets, not quite, you know, that low on the economic spectrum, but when you get up into what, you know, a middle class for a developing market, you do have more demand for protein products, meat, milk, and eggs. That comes from local producers. It also can come from imports. And so, you know, some of the barriers we're facing are the same. For instance, government policy, you know, the ability to have cold chain, that type of thing. Um, and so those are areas where we would partner with MEF. We also partner often with our equivalent in the soybean industry, um, sometimes in the equivalent in, our, in the wheat industry. I mean, agriculture, just like in the U.S., it all kind of overlaps. Same overseas as well. Yeah, absolutely. So as we look at wrapping up the conversation here this morning, Melissa, is there anything that I've missed that you would like to share and, and you want our listeners to take away? Yeah, I mean, I think people, I want people to understand that we are out there really working for farmers. Um, we value that farmer input and we want to make sure that they have access to the information that they need and want about overseas markets. We really encourage people to go to our website, which is grains.org, um, or follow us on social media because there's a lot of information available um, and to engage with us and engage, you know, through our advisory team process um, and really think about the world as your market because it is. Um, U.S. Farmers are helping to feed the world and are benefiting from being able to sell into the world. And that's a function of market development work that we're doing, as well as policy. Understanding that is, is I think, really, really critical for the future of our industry. So happy, happy to have the opportunity to talk with you about it today. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. You know, I, I think that we probably did have some listeners here this morning who weren't familiar with U.S. Grains Council prior to this conversation. And it's such an important, it's such important work that your team does um, globally helping to facilitate these markets. So we did have a couple of questions pop in. So in order to attend a trade school, do you have to be a member of a state commodity association? Um, no, you do not. So we, um, for reasons of both uh, kind of logistical complexity and, um, you know, also just open access, no, we opened it to farmers in general. Great, great to hear. So um, next question here, you talked about emerging markets in Southeast Asia. Where exactly are those emerging markets in Southeast Asia and how long will it take for those to be open opportunities for U.S. farmers? Right. So um, Southeast Asia is a very complex uh, area. There's, I mean, we're talking a dozen countries and some of them are at different levels of, I would say, um, market access as well as development. So, you know, Vietnam is just roaring right now. Um, Other markets we're looking at, Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, Malaysia, um, all of them have different opportunities and different kind of policy barriers or logistical barriers. And that's what our staff on the ground is really working on. And then there's, of course, things that come up like African swine fever. Well, that that changes things pretty dramatically. Um, But that's where having that staff like in country as well as in the region. So we can go in and, you know, for instance, help poor producers shift to producing poultry or aquaculture. Um, That's where that kind of on the ground presence really comes into play because they're all it, it shifts regularly. Right. And, and so looking, totally answered it, but yeah. <laughs> looking at those markets, are there specific commodities that you're more focused on than others when you're working to facilitate those markets? Yeah, a lot of our focus has been on ethanol recently, as well as DDGs. I think that there's a lot of potential there. Um, corn is obviously also always a big um, push. We also do sorghum and barley. I think sorghum has opportunities in very specific markets, um, but more than you would think. I mean, you've got pet food, um, you've got you know opportunities for uh, markets that, you know, for some reason don't prefer to have a, prefer a non-GMO product. Um, there's a lot of opportunities there. Sorghum, obviously at the moment, is being very highly demanded again by China. So that's a market where you have, you know, a supply that is very heavily demanded at certain periods, um, but certainly a product that has a lot of benefits our consumers find also. Right. So, you know, talking more about these DDGs, are there feeding trials involved in these? I mean, what does oh, yeah. that look like to get, um, you know, different sectors of the, the livestock industry to adopt some of these feeding technologies? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's a big piece of work. I'm glad you brought that up that we do. Um, So, you know, a feeding trial, they're not necessarily kind of scientific, like you would think, like we're hearing a lot about vaccine trials these days, not quite like that. Um, But, you know, a more kind of simple thing where you get a local producer, ideally a producer who has some cachet um, or some, you know, is known as a good producer in the region, because as everyone listening to this knows, like farmers follow other farmers Um, and, you know, working with them to run an on-farm trial and say, okay, feed some of your cattle or whatever, um, supplement with DDGs, and then we'll see how their gain goes or how their milk production goes or what have you, whatever the goals of the trial are, Um, and then publishing those results in the local area and beyond and showing, yeah, this stuff really does work. And that's often a very powerful piece of showing, okay, 
this is worth looking into, this is worth investing in, even if it costs more from the outset, you know, you're making that money back. Um, the other piece of that I would say, and this is, a, you know, an example of in Southeast Mexico is what's coming to my mind is, you know, the, the work on um, kind of convincing people of the benefits of DDGs, which includes often feeding trials, has to run along with helping make sure that the product is available. So developing those marketing channels, um, because it is, you know, it, it is a uh, kind of a different product and you've got to have people who are importing it, bagging it if you're selling to smaller suppliers, um, like allowing it to be into the marketplace, transportation issues. Um, and we see that really at all levels, but making sure that like the flow, the actual supply chain is working as well as the demand on the people wanting it. Obviously when those marry up, that's when we get success, but we do work on both pieces of it. And I would say the other piece I'd add to it is, is it's not just necessarily, you know, cattle, chickens, whatever it's, um, aquaculture is becoming a big thing in many markets. Um, I was surprised to learn, um, you know, we're selling, I was on a virtual trade team recently and someone asked about, can you feed DDGs in cattle and camel rations? Like, um, camel milk is a thing. And so, uh, uh, yep, you sure can. And, you know, the funniest part about that was our Saudi Arabian representative who's, you know, been part of our organization for a long time pipes up and says, oh yeah, you know, you can, and I'll send you information. And okay, great. You know, that's not something I think many farmers in the U.S. are sitting around thinking about, but um, it's a small, but real market. Um, right. Right. Goats and camels and fish need to eat too. So there yeah, and go. when you're developing these markets, every little bit helps, right? Every opportunity is an opportunity. That's right. Yeah. I mean, we want to make sure there's a return on your investment for sure. And again, you want to make sure those supply chains will actually function for the size of the market. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and some of these markets, I mean, aqua is a huge and growing market. Um, we don't think of it as a traditional market, but it's out there. And so it's time for us to seize it. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us here this morning, Melissa, as we look at wrapping up, um, you know, definitely important work that your team does. Want to extend a, a, a big thank you um, to your team for facilitating all of this um, and joining us here this morning. So, Brian, I think we're ready to hand it back over to you. Thanks for joining us for AGI SureTrack Coffee Talk. Connect with us on the web at agisuretrackcommunity.com.